Good morning. It's Friday, the 18th of August, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital and most rocking city in the world. Our top stories and themes for the day: the rupee falls to a record low against the dollar, and we find out why. India's corporate profit cycle is the strongest in 15 years, says Standard Chartered Bank. How increased disease surveillance could get us better medicines and faster. And finally, Scotch whisky may get cheaper. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. The Indian rupee is falling against the dollar. Now this is a good time to send any dollars my way that you may have wanted to since you will obviously have to send less of them. The rupee closed at 83.15 rupees a dollar, the lowest close ever, that's down almost 0.23% from its previous close of rupees 82.96. Earlier in the day it opened at 83 rupees and closed at 83.16 yesterday. Meanwhile, in intraday it's still a 0.2% away from its record low, but it's obviously close to the record. Last time the rupee hit a record low intraday was on 20th October 2022 around 83 rupees 29 paise. Forex markets by the way were closed on Tuesday and Wednesday. Various reasons are driving this fall, rising US bond yields and a fall in Chinese currency is one. Most specifically, US bond yields have surged to a 15 year peak thanks to strong economic data that's dispelled assumptions of a Federal Reserve pause or reversal in interest rate hikes. The US 10-year yield climbed to 4.31% while the UK 10-year gilt also reached a 15-year high. The rise in yields is making investors nervous because past surges have at times proved destabilizing for markets according to the Wall Street Journal. Moreover, the markets seem to be concluding that there is no recession imminent now in the United States. To get a sense on what's going on, I reached out to Anindya Banerjee, Vice President, Currency Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives at Kotak Securities. and began by asking him how he was seeing the dollar rupee dance i also threw in a question on the sinking ruble and whether that could affect india's trade see the indian rupee this time around the deposition against the us dollar is primarily being led by global factors because a currency is always an interplay between domestic and global this time around surprisingly there are no domestic issues because oil is still well below 100 it is the issues with chinese yuan it is the issue with the rising real interest rates in america which is causing the indian rupee to depreciate against the us dollar but we are seeing a heavy intervention from the rbi over the past two or three trading sessions how is the dollar looking in the near future as well i mean uh, i know you described how things were currently right the dollar is on a very strong wicket because the first and foremost thing that the real interest rate on the dollar that is interest rate after adjusting for inflation is at the highest level since 2008 now as this yields continue to rise in america because their economy is doing pretty good because the initially the uh, start of this year the expectation was that by the time we'll be in august and september us economy would be close to recession even fed had that kind of a view but that is not materializing that's the reason why the yields have risen significant especially at the longer end 5 year 10 year and 30 year so that will be supported for the us dollar and at the same time we have a problem in the emerging market space with china because in china the economic situation is precarious that is hurting the broad emerging market sentiment 
So these two factors won't change overnight. It will take some time. For China, they have to announce a large-scale stimulus. And for the interest rates or for the yields to cool off in America, Fed has to turn dovish. That's not happening in a hurry. So this is, I would say, two major factors which will drive the dollar higher. And Indian rupee cannot ignore that trend. Okay. So now let me come to rupee-ruble. Now, the ruble which had uh, sunk to an all-time low when Russia invaded Ukraine has now again started falling and quite dramatically. What does this mean from an India context since we are trying to do a lot of this rupee-ruble trade, uh, particularly in oil? It could be, in fact, uh, beneficial for us because there has been an emergency interest rate hike in Russia of 350 basis points. And after that, some stability has come in the ruble, but now there is a talk of capital controls being imposed, which means uh, there is a sense of desperation which is creeping in. Now, that's good news for India because it helps us to get a higher discount on the oil which we are importing for our consumption and also for our processing and trading. Right. Anindya, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, stock markets here, which have been trading weak for some time, now settled lower on Thursday. The BSC Sensex fell 388 points to end at 65,151. And the NSE Nifty 50 was down 100 points at 19,365. Standard Chartered joins the line of bullish banks. Where was Standard Chartered all this while? Or at least in the last few months when all other banks were putting out bullish reports, I wonder. Anyway, one has finally arrived. India's corporate profit cycle is the strongest since the 2004 to 2008 cycle, the bank has said. Standard Chartered says that it expects the current equity cycle to be analogous to the 2003-2008 bull cycle when output growth rose sharply, inflation stayed stable and improvements in productivity drove a rise in investments. So all good news of course, with another historical twist and perspective which always helps when bull markets take a breather as they are even if temporarily. Some other interesting data points and it's always good to collect these data points once in a while. First, domestic consumption has played a significant role contributing around 60% to overall growth while investments vital for enhancing productive capacity and ensuring long-term growth also made a contribution of around 30%. At the end of March 2023, the financial year, India's GDP stood at around $3.4 trillion while per capita GDP has more than doubled to $2,600 US versus just $1,010 US in 2008. Standard Chartered also quotes the IMF saying that India's share of global GDP growth is expected to surpass that of France and the United Kingdom by 2028, making India an increasingly key driver of global economic growth. Moreover, says Standard Chartered, or Stan C as we will call them now, a transition into an upper middle income economy would bring about transformative changes to the economic landscape. Living standards would improve and consumption patterns would likely change as income rises, attracting further foreign direct investments. And finally, Stan C quotes a 2023 United Nations report to say that India now has one of the highest working age populations in the world. 68% of the population in India is part of the working age group defined as being within the age of 15 to 64 years, while 26% of the population is within the age of 10 to 24 years, making India one of the youngest countries in the world. 
India's working age population growth, by the way, has outpaced its dependent population, which means there could be increased savings potential as more people work and add to savings rather than draw them on during retirement. Stancy also says that a gradual shift to a multipolar world is likely to benefit India, or put differently, companies are shifting out of China, as we keep talking about right here, as we know, and that could lead to more manufacturing in India, helped, of course, by Make in India-like initiatives. And India's fixed investments have also recovered post the pandemic with the investment rate now back to a 2012 high of 34% of GDP. Most of the pickup in investments have been driven by increased government capital expenditure through large-scale infrastructure investments in expressways, railways, renewables, electrification, urban metros, airports and irrigation, Stancy says. And Stancy also says it is seeing initial signs of a revival in private capex driven by deleveraged corporate balance sheets and improved bank lending to investments amid a broad-based pickup in capacity utilization. Speaking of capacity utilization, it has now risen to 74% in the third quarter of this year, above the long-term trend, something economist Dr. Brinda Jagirdar also highlighted to us just a day before. Increased disease surveillance can help save lives. As COVID was raging, a point that kept emerging, including through the words of philanthropist Bill Gates, was the need for increased and consistent disease surveillance. This is so that we can spot infections and infectious diseases earlier as they emerge and thus get the machinery to cure or potentially vaccinate against them up and running faster. Illumina, a $32 billion biotech major, has worked on surveillance projects around tuberculosis in India, including in understanding the multi-drug resistance to it. Using next-generation sequencing, or NGS as it's called, scientists are finding the key to respond faster. All this could lead to faster disease or illness identification, response, and more targeted medicines or medication. I caught up with Joydeep Goswami, Chief Strategy and Corporate Development Officer for Illumina, visiting India right now to open a new office in Bangalore. And I began by asking him to tell me what was happening in tuberculosis surveillance before moving on to overall disease surveillance. So on TB, as you know, you know, there are still more than a half a million cases of TB that are occurring globally. And you know, roughly about 30% of these cases are in India. Now, what's more troubling, though, is that TB is increasingly developing strains that are called MDR or XDR, you know, multi-drug-resistant TB. And these have a particular challenge because the, the particular strain is uh, resistant to certain types of antibiotics that are traditionally used. And you have to be able to understand that a patient has this particular strain because if you treat it with the other type of medication, the traditional antibiotic, A is not effective, B even makes the effectiveness of that antibiotic and further applications less effective. And lastly, the patient then has a much bigger chance of communicating to the disease to others. So where sequencing and our solutions come in is that, you know, sequencing is able to determine the exact strain of the TB very, very quickly. So if you were to do this by culture and other methods, it would take you 30 days to find out whether it's one strain or the other. Even then, right, it would not tell you exactly which substrain it is very easily. In sequencing, you can find out this result in a matter of days, and you really can get the exact strain and the exact match to what kind of antibiotic would be best to treat that strain. Now, we've been doing a lot of work globally and in India in helping 
countries and communities and healthcare systems come up to speed with using NGS to be able to detect MDR-TB very quickly. So first of all, you know, we've worked with uh, global organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rock Foundation, et cetera, that are supporting these initiatives and contributed to those as they invest or support with philanthropy these causes. Second, we announced earlier this year that we had work with a company called GenoScreen that had developed a MDR-TB assay on our platform, and we were actually bringing this assay along with them on a global basis, and we were working towards that in India as well. And third, we've also been part of the Find, Seek, and Treat initiative, right, which had a lot of work done in India to prove out the concept of using NGS. And lastly, we also started working with uh, several state governments in India as they are to look at high incidence of TB in their particular states and bring in on the backs of uh, actually some of the COVID infrastructure that had been developed to really find uh, ways to integrate NGS into the TB paradigm or the TB detect and treat paradigm. So you mentioned the Gates Foundation and Bill Gates has been talking about the critical importance of surveillance, uh, including in his book. So tell us about what's happening in surveillance globally in terms of what's new that's happening and how is that translating into faster or more effective drugs to solve some of the bigger challenges in medicine? Yeah, so look, surveillance is very important. And, and you know, there have been lots of folks that uh, lots of scientists and people like Bill Gates talking about surveillance for a long time, right? And what surveillance is, is you're really looking across and, and looking at whether new strains of pathogens are developing over time, especially ones that may be more virulent or spread easier, and looking at that in a systematic manner. You know, what happened with COVID was unfortunate, right? Because many governments found out that although they had talked about it, they're not fully invested in it, the systems that they've put in place were not really equipped or staffed to be able to do this at scale quickly enough. And where that led to is this belief that, you know, you have to do this at scale. You have to do it closer to source because you're not trying to ship samples. You have to share the data and share it in global databases so that everyone benefits from that knowledge. I mean, you know, infectious diseases, as COVID has proven, are not limited to one country or one area. They spread very, very quickly in the world we live in. So here's the good news, right? So I think, unfortunately, COVID kind of brought that home, but it also forced a lot of countries to invest in that infrastructure and build up labs, sometimes multiple labs, that were equipped to look at how the pathogen is evolving or mutating, if you will, into different strains. And that is really important. But the good news about it is as this infrastructure has been set up, it can now be used for diseases beyond COVID, right? So the World Health Organization and our organizations are actually funding a lot of initiatives for countries that uh, you know, are less able to do it to be able to continue down that path. We at Illumina are making it easier to be able to do this at scale across different pathogens. We have uh, you know, several programs that we're working on internally, but also in uh, collaboration with others. All of our instruments are equipped with the ability to then at the user's request to transmit that information globally into central databases, right? So that also has been proven very nicely with uh, the work that we did uh, during COVID. And lastly, you've also seen some newer technologies come up, which were not there before, like wastewater surveillance, for example, right? Which can give you a very good idea of what's happening at a population level 
and you can actually track whether certain diseases or certain strains are becoming more prevalent in a population and whether it's transmitting from one part uh, to another. You know, the last thing about the link to drugs, I think obviously the data on specific genetic information on strains is then very useful for pharmaceutical companies, including vaccine developers, to say, okay, you know, here's what the strain we have to target next. And the advantage now with technologies such as mRNA technology that came into really focus during the uh, COVID era is that you can now take that genomic information and go directly to a vaccine, right, without ever having to go chicken eggs or other things that were traditional areas. So the process becomes much faster. It becomes more universal because the delivery technologies are known as that. And as those things have scaled up, there's a lot more benefit. Of course, that information will also start, you know, for, for things like TB, for example, right? They become critical in figuring out well, which antibiotics will or will not work. And it becomes central to the research that needs to be done. And uh, what's one example of this transition from data that you're collecting to the drugs that are being manufactured, perhaps for a disease that people are trying to address or fight right now? Um, so, you know, in general, there's, there's a lot. I mean, the biggest example, of course, is on the vaccines front, right? The data from COVID went very quickly to developing the bivalent vaccines, for example. In the longer run, I mean, things like antibiotic resistance or antimicrobial resistance pieces are very dependent on the data that's collected. But even if you go beyond infectious disease, right, things in, like in cancer, Understanding the genetic makeup of tumors, understanding, you know, the specific propensity of a tumor to mutate is very central to developing drugs that attack that specific mutation or that specific site. You mentioned earlier before we started off that, you know, all of this is helping you also or rather will help drug companies produce drugs that are far more directed and targeted at the problem and therefore could lead to earlier resolution than perhaps before? Yeah, so there's a couple of things there, right? So one, maybe the simpler thing to understand is, you know, if you understand exactly what's causing the disease and you can attack that particular problem or the things that either help a particular pathway, a biological pathway be more effective or stop a biological pathway that causes disease, that's pretty easy to understand that a drug that's targeted towards that and benefits from that understanding would be more effective. So that part's easy, but what people don't understand is, you know, there's often news that a new drug molecule often costs upwards of $2 billion to develop. But the part of that, which most people don't understand is that that cost is primarily driven by the failures that happen in the multiple attempts that people make. So it's an average, it's a calculated value. And the sad reality is of the new ideas or drugs that, you know, are initially born in, in the research area. More than 90% of them fail before they make it to the market. And unfortunately, more than 70% or 80% fail in late stage, which is extremely expensive for the drug. So the idea with these targeted therapies is that you are very focused on the types of things that you know will work because it comes from genomic information and genetic information at the patient. So you're able to you know, really focus in on the types of experiments you have to prove. You then go into clinical trials knowing exactly what kinds of patients you have to recruit and inclusion-exclusion criteria to be able to get. So the cost of clinical trials goes down. And conversely as well, the chances of success and the speed at which you can get through trials goes up. So it's a win-win-win really for the patient, for the pharmaceutical company, 
and ultimately for the populations at large. Jaydeep, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Will scotch get cheaper? If all this news on falling rupee and pound is depressing you, by the way, did you know that it is 106 rupees to a pound? Reports are emerging that India may agree to slash tariffs on British cars and Scotch whisky even as the UK is looking at relaxing some visa rules for Indian professionals according to Indian officials who told Bloomberg. The important point is of course that while Scotch whisky consumption usually defies slowdowns and recessions, tipplers could surely enjoy a little more knowing that they were paying a little less. India and the UK have apparently softened their positions on most of their points of contention as both nations try to wrap up trade talks ahead of expected national polls next year, sources told Bloomberg. Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his British counterpart Rishi Sunak are pushing to double bilateral trade by 2030 through a pact that slashes tariffs and increases market access. Both governments hope to wind up trade talks before year end, according to both Indian and British officials speaking to Bloomberg. Yes, all this means that it's also some time away before scotch prices come down if they do, but the knowledge that they may come down may of course be of some assistance. And before I go, some news from space. Chandrayaan-3 has entered the final leg of its mission on August 17th following a controlled separation of the lander and rover payloads from the propulsion module. The lander named Vikram and the rover named Pragyan underwent a successful separation from the spacecraft's propulsion module around 1:15 p.m. on August 17th, the Indian Space Research Organisation or ISRO said. The separation process marked the beginning of the most crucial stage of the moon mission which was launched from Sriharikota on July 14th. The key objectives of this mission as outlined by the space agency are to demonstrate a safe and soft landing on the moon and a demonstration of the Pragyan rover collecting lunar data for scientific experiments. Well that's it from me for now. Have a great weekend ahead and see you next week and also don't forget to tune in for the core report weekend edition tomorrow where I have a conversation with B Thyagarajan managing director of Blue Star the air conditioning company to find out about the journey of India's manufacturing sector seen through the eyes of a air conditioner. See you next week. This was the core report with me Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector write to us at feedback@thecore.in at thank you for listening